reading this morning from the New Testament is from Luke 1, verses 68 to 69. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And from the book of Ruth, chapter 2, verses 14 to 23. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it to her for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. wonderful to be here with you this morning as we continue forward in our series in the book of Ruth and we're talking about how we see the gospel uh, both in situations of our famine and situations in our harvest in our lives that, that God is working through the most difficult and challenging moments we face in life and brings to us redemption and so we talked about last week about the turn from famine to harvest in our two main characters, Ruth and Boaz. And, and last week, we talked about how God's favor had fallen upon Ruth in her covenant commitment. We see the words, God, the favor of the Lord has, has fallen onto her multiple times throughout that passage. So that even though she is suffering, even though she's a sojourner, uh, she remains steadfast. And God's favor is, is over her. She is loved. She is cared for. That God has not ignored her plight, but that grace is being extended to her through this worthy figure that has entered into her life, this, this man by the name of Boaz. And so we're going to look again at this relationship uh, between Boaz and Ruth that is growing. And so much of the book of Ruth and so, many, so much of the way that it's taught uh, oftentimes is it, it, it tries to romanticize the story where the story is actually quite unromantic. In particular, our text today is not about romance. It's about kindness. The kindness of God on display demonstrated through Boaz's kindness to Ruth. 
And we will see here how God's kindness transforms the darkest things of the world and changes them to light. And more importantly, we will see how the kindness of Christ does this for us to transform our famine to harvest. So uh, pray with me before we begin today's sermon. Father God, we pray that we would uh, be transformed today, uh, not through the crushing weight of the law, not through the uh, hopelessness of self-determination or self-help, but rather through the kindness of Christ on display in your word. We pray that kindness would transform us to be people of grace, people of compassion, people of justice, of restoration and redemption. May your word preach to us the power of kindness. And may it move and change us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we had our first encounter with Boaz meeting Ruth. Boaz, this, this self-described this man by the author of Ruth, uh, worthy, who has turned to Ruth and has seen her, not as a foreigner, but rather a sojourner that the Lord has commanded his people to welcome and protect. So Boaz allows her to glean in his field and strictly commanded his people to allow her to do so with complete access, so that, she, that she would not be impeded. And we saw how this is uh, about God's favor towards us, how Christ is both Ruth and Boaz in this story. Christ is the steadfast, suffering sojourner, and Christ is also the one who grants us the Lord's favor in our own journeys of suffering while holding on to the faith. So today's story continues, and I want to start off by making a claim that seems contradictory in nature when I say it, but is that, but the, the, here, here's, here's the phrase, uh, kindness is powerful. Kindness is powerful. Uh, now this might seem obvious, but when we associate the word power, we often don't think of kindness as the first form of that. We have, in fact, idioms in our world today that associate kindness with not power, but weakness. No good deed goes unpunished, right? Nice guys finish last, right? This idea that nobody wants a kind person to take lead or take charge because being nice means you won't get ahead in life. People don't grow up with posters of kind people on their walls, right? They want powerful, dominant figures that demonstrate strength and power and authority. Kindness seems like a really good way for people to take advantage of you. And yet, one of the major themes of Ruth is that the kindness of God is the power that breaks through the famine that Naomi and Ruth are experiencing. And not just for Ruth and Naomi, but for the entire people of God. And to be more specific, God's kindness is powerful in the way that it changes and shapes us the entire world. So today we're going to examine Boaz's kindness to Ruth and Naomi, and in doing so, we're going to see three things today. Uh, one, God's kindness leads to justice. Two, God's kindness leads to restoration. And three, God's kindness leads to redemption. So first, let's talk about how God's kindness leads to justice. So Boaz has just brought Ruth to 
be able to experience the right that she is given by God through the law as a sojourner. She is allowed to gather barley without worry or fear that her ethnic status as a Moabite would lead her to be persecuted or even worse, physically abused in the field. Boaz has placed on her his favor, so she's been working to gather all that she can to provide for her family. In our text today, at around mealtime, Boaz turns to her and grants her this first kindness of sharing a meal with him. Another important visible signal, not just to Ruth, but all to who work for Boaz, that Ruth is a part of his community. Boaz's kindness towards Ruth in these next several verses will demonstrate the work of justice. What do I mean by this? Now, uh, when I say the word justice, many of you might be thinking of, of legal justice in a court of law, or perhaps the way that justice is defined today. Um, and, you know, we're often fighting about what does that definition mean. But before justice was a controversial term of the last five years, justice was a biblical term. And how have Christians over the uh, church history defined this word justice? They, they don't do so in a legal courtroom setting. They don't do so under the, the idea of political policy but under the setting of kindness. Uh, the Lexham Bible Dictionary Survey of Scripture says that biblical justice properly defined is the actions that promote the well-being and equality of all involved. The Dutch theologian Herman Bavink called it the way in which the grace and love of God are maintained. This word justice. The German theologian and, and the Kickstarter of the Reformation, Martin Luther, referred to it as the way in which a person lives by a gift of God. The great civil rights leader, Martin Luther King Jr., said that justice is at its best in, in its power correcting everything that stands against love. You see, justice, in other words, is the way that kindness is displayed for all, especially those who are most vulnerable and those who are most in need. This is why the law in Deuteronomy makes painstaking detail regarding the treatment of the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, servants, those who are most economically, socially, and ethnically vulnerable in the people of God. This is why Jesus' ministry, the ministry of reconciliation, was recorded most towards those who have been on the outskirts of moral and civil society. Lepers, Syrophoenicians, Gentiles. The kindness of God, in other words, isn't just a kind thought or a kind word about people. It's the pursuit of justice for those who are in great need. So what does this look like for Boaz? Well, he understands that someone in Ruth's position will need much work to require justice that God's kindness will speak to. He understands that Ruth will need provision, food, and lots of it. Enough that she is able to be full and have some left over. He understands that Ruth will need opportunities to glean that she may not get if other servants who have been there longer get to it first. You see, the provision for sojourners was the corners of the fields. It was left there, but, but servants who are keen and who were, who were experienced in working in the fields will know how to get there sooner. It's, it's the idea of being able to get to the opportunity quicker. And so Boaz understanding this, allows Ruth an unfettered access, not just the corners of the fields. And in fact, he, inqu he inquires to his workers to make sure and guarantee that Ruth is able to receive additional barley. 
He understands, though, that the people of God, of course, were commanded to protect Ruth. Of course, they should protect Ruth. He doesn't assume that his people will. Treats Ruth with the dignity that she deserves. Which is why Boaz demands that his workers do not reproach or rebuke her. He is not naive to the fact that his very own people might be the worst offenders. Ruth's status as a Moabite widow will not be the reason why she is denied the opportunity to receive justice. Boaz, in other words, sees justice as a full orb view. It isn't just the kindness to provide one meal, but to make sure that she has meals to come. It isn't just the dignity of his individual treatment of Ruth the Moabite to eat at his table. It's the challenge he makes to his community around him that people should see Ruth as one of us instead of one of them. It's recognizing that though she would have an equal opportunity to eat clean the field, there are societal factors that would prevent her from having the equal opportunity and creating the circumstances in which Ruth would not just have a fighting chance, but a guaranteed chance to survive. Ruth's position changes from a mere sojourner gleaner to someone who has the rights of the family, the rights of access, the rights of ability. She would not be subject to those who would use their position to demean, degrade, or, un or undignify her. She would receive justly the kindness of Boaz. You see, in other words, kindness enters into the difficult complexity of what justice demands and requires for every situation. And asking ourselves the question of what it would mean to allow this individual to flourish in the given context and circumstances of the moment at hand. And when we do that, we are imitating the God who displays his kindness to us in a way that God reveals his character of justice in his dealings with us. You see, just like Ruth, we did not deserve the kindness of God, and yet God gives it to us abundantly. Just like Ruth, many of us have felt undignified through the ways in which our society, our, our economic pressures have labeled us as the other our beliefs, and God brings us to a covenant community that not only protects us from polarizing division, but the great shepherd protects his flock and protects us. You see, God knows the ways in which society and the world will try and hurt the most vulnerable around us. And God promises us that vengeance is his, that he will repay, that justice in the end will not be delayed, but at the right time, the people of God will be vindicated and be brought the justice that is due to them. God's kindness towards Ruth removes, removes the labels of harm that the famine created and brings her into the harvest of a new identity. She is no longer the foreigner, Ruth. She is no longer the widow, the pagan. She is a part of protect, being protected and cared for by Boaz through his kindness. So, uh, it's important for us, after all this discussion about justice, to ask ourselves this question. How are you doing the work of justice today? You see, by God's grace, we are not called to solve all the world's problems. The church cannot take on that role. But, but, but God's commands are crystal clear that the church, you and I, should be involved in this work of showing kindness through the work of justice. So yes, 
We cannot solve all of the world's problems, but that doesn't mean that we do nothing. The Lord has instilled in each of you a passion, a desire, a heart for the most vulnerable. It is a marker of the people of God. How are you committing yourself to the orphan, the widow, the stranger? How are you committing yourself to seek out the spheres in which God has given you dominion to be a force of powerful kindness? What does that look like for you in your life today? You see, God's justice is not something that is only done to us. It's something that comes out of his people. And so when God's kindness has arrived to justice in this text, this naturally leads us to the next implication, that God's kindness leads to restoration. We see this here. Ruth arrives home after a long day, excitedly bringing home an ephah of barley back to Naomi. Now, remember how we left Naomi in the story. She wanted to be called the name Mara, which meant bitter. She was left in total disarray and believed that the Lord had removed his favor from her. She was in a state of what we would call today deconstruction. She's doubting the goodness of God. She's questioning what kindness, if any, is left in the world for her. And then Ruth arrives, and she brings this ephah. And this alone, this single act, begins the turning tide for Naomi's faith. And why is this? Well, let's examine this here for a second. The ephah of barley equated to roughly about half a month's worth of food, give or take. Ruth, in one day, assured that the famine of Naomi, the struggle for scarcity of food in their situations, would no longer be a worry. Ruth, carrying about 30 to 50 pounds worth of barley after a long day of work, would bring relief to her distressed mother-in-law, bringing her leftovers of the meal that she had earlier today. So it's not even just for the future, it's for this current moment. The pursuit of justice. Boaz's kindness has a ripple effect that goes beyond what Boaz can see. Not only uplifting the cause of justice for Ruth and her treatment, but also restoring Naomi. Kindness brings about restoration. Naomi can hardly believe what's going on. And in two times, in verses 19 and 20, she calls upon the Lord's blessing on Boaz for his, what? His kindness to Ruth and subsequently to their family as well. Now, this gives us a window to Naomi as a character in Scripture, and, and in doing so, we will begin to see ourselves in Naomi. You see, the scriptural characters are not just there to demonstrate just how human they are, they're there to describe what we are. Naomi, in just the course of one chapter, moves from bitterness, creating false identities for herself, giving her a name that isn't true to the experience of what she's actually living in, and now she goes from that to proclaiming the blessings of the Lord unto those who have demonstrated kindness. In other words, the space that she was allowed to have to express grief, doubt, uh, maybe even a wrestling with God, just like the psalmist, has now given room for restorative joy. The identity that she believed to be about herself, bitter, like the psalmist says, maybe she believed that she thought she was a worm and not a human. Turns out not to be true. Naomi is far more 
than the circumstances that she has gone through. She is far more greater than the labels of condemnation that the society around her would give her as a runaway Israelite and the labels of condemnation that she gives to herself. The kindness of God through Boaz has revealed this to her. And the minute she experiences it, her mind, her heart, her praise is restored to the Lord who brought about this harvest in front of her. This is what the kindness of the Lord does to us. It takes whatever identities of sin and shame that we've clouded over ourselves and restores us to see that what we have instead is the kindness of Christ. We have the kindness of Jesus' generosity, his protection over us, his sheep, that he has not lost one, that he loves us so much he laid down his life for us. And this kindness gives us a better identity. You are no longer a failure. You are no longer the one who was abused. You are no longer defined by the worst thing that has happened to you or defined by the worst thing that you've ever done. You have a better identity. You have been shown the kindness of God. I got the opportunity this past week to go to a conference in Atlanta working with faith leaders trying to understand how polarization and division have wrecked this country over the last four or five years. Um, and it was, it was a beautiful conference. Uh, one of these seminars, uh, I got to hear from a neuro, neurologist by the name of Michael Nakoncha, who specialized, his, his key work was specializing in the rehabilitation of ISIS defectors. Now, if you know anything about ISIS, you will know that being a part of ISIS was an all-consuming identity. The mental and physical trauma is a huge part of the experience of getting otherwise rational people to do some of the world's most horrific things. And all those experiences of violence and polarization, how it shaped the brains of these ISIS defectors, uh, meant that the approach of Michael and these neurologists had to be different than merely telling them that they are no longer ISIS soldiers. You see, the loss of, uh, of identity and trauma negatively affected all of the symptoms of PTSD that they were facing. Rather, what, what Michael and the research that developed out of this in working with these defectors is, is that the way that you manage those symptoms, the way that there's a road to healing is not to focus on the loss of a negative identity, but to focus on a new positive social identity that is now their new reality. The and when that happened, the soldiers responded more resiliently to their circumstances beyond ISIS. In other words, you see, ISIS had become a part of their formation of how they identified themselves, their, their generational past, their religion, their personhood. And that was a huge loss for them. Without a real replacement for that, it was causing great frustration, horror, and pain of what they conceived themselves to be. Telling them that they were no longer ISIS was not enough. What was more formative was telling them, you are a son, you are a daughter, you are courageous for leaving. You are a survivor, forming new positive identities of kindness to themselves rather than trying to rid the former labels of hate. Now, we as Christians can obviously look at that research and go, well, this is obviously what we see in the gospel news. You are a new creation. Notice this in the life of Naomi. Naomi fled Israel during the time of famine, thinking that the restoration she could build outside of the people of God would save her. 
doesn't turn out anything like she would expect or hope, but when she returns to Israel, the negative labels she brings and gives to herself don't wind up uh, being the story of guilt, but actually in God's kindness, God brings to her a new identity, a positive one. What Naomi realized in this moment of exclamation towards Ruth, how she finds her strength in the faith again, is not in the identity of Mara, of bitterness, that she placed herself. It's not in the identity of the realization of the trauma that she faced as a refugee or someone who had suffered unimaginable loss as a widow. Naomi realizes in this moment that she is under the kindness of God and it changes everything on the outlook of her life and the outlook of her new family. Do you know that if you've been saved by grace, you are a child of the Most High God? You are a child of the God of love, a God of joy and peace. You know that he is shaping your life in ways that you can't even begin to imagine. That he is helping you to mortify your sin. That he is helping you towards new obedience in him. That he is helping you to be a blessing to others. That because of what Christ has done for you on the cross for your sin, because of his resurrection, you are no longer the worst things you call yourself. What new identity are you embracing today? The greatest hope that I can give to you as a minister of the gospel is to realize that God has brought about his kindness to you. Our children here, covenant children here today, Jesus says that he wants you to come to him. And he delights when you do so. Jesus tells Nicodemus, his religious opponent, that he can be born again to new life. Jesus tells us that the free offer of the gospel is for all of us here today. You see, Jesus does not engage in the weaponry or the slander of the Pharisees or the politics of moneymakers in the temple. Rather, he takes the punishment of the cross and forgives his enemies. Jesus is doing all of this for you and I so that we might see the glory of God the unimaginable has said kindness. And dwelling upon this, I hope that this is helping you to think about the power of narrative in your own lives and see where the Lord's kindness can break through your cynicism, maybe even your self-hatred, your sinful self-conception, and lead you to seek out the hope that Christ has raised that you can and that you will change. And in doing this, you have the grace to forgive the great failures and mistakes of others. You don't have to hold anyone in condemnation anymore, believing that how they've grieved you is the person that they always will be. You can actually believe that people can change. You can release people from the guilt that you bring to yourself. Parents to your kids, kids to your parents, Instead of lording over others with the law, you demonstrate the power of grace. Because at the end of the day, our last point here today, God's kindness brings about redemption. Now, Naomi hints at this reality that foreshadows the uniqueness of Boaz and Ruth's future relationship, that Boaz is one of their redeemers. 
Now, this term in chapter 2 has brought about a lot of discussion amongst biblical scholars regarding in what sense did Naomi believe that Boaz was a redeemer? And generally, the interpretation of this word redeemer falls into two categories of disagreement. Uh, the first interpretation says that the word for redeemer here is just sort of a, a, a blanket sense term of the word redeemer, this general sense of the word that Naomi have been, have been uh, blessed, they've been received kindness, that they have no need to worry about their circumstances. And, and while it certainly does mean that, uh, the second strain of interpretation for the word redeemer is, is a more specific kind of redemption. The one that I think is, is more accurate and correct here. Naomi is referring to Boaz as what we would call a kinsman redeemer, which means that Boaz has the religious and legal responsibilities to care for Ruth and take her in as his wife. The result here it means that Boaz's kindness will extend to just simply more than just allowing Ruth to glean in a field, redemption in sort of a general sense, but there, there's more that Boaz can provide in redemption for Ruth and Naomi. Now, without diving too hard into the debate between these two interpretations, I think the second interpretation serves the text better, even though there are issues with it. Uh, mainly the fact that Naomi is just bringing up the fact now that there's a kinsman redeemer that could have saved them, that seems a little strange. That seems a little bit weird to bring up now, especially considering Naomi's desperation heading back to Israel. But, but I believe that problems aside, this line of interpretation is correct because the main theme of the text here today, which is the kindness of God, is, is talking about the idea of this word hesed. Now, as we discussed several weeks ago, uh, hesed, which is the Hebrew word of kindness, and that's a really a poor English translation, it's the best we've got, is more than just, again, the feeling of being kind, or sort of a resolve in an inward person to be a kind of individual. Hesed kindness is the kindness that compels you to act forward in such a way that it is free from you. It is your covenant vows lived out in reality and joy and gladness. It's, it's the kindness that you just can't help but to do. said is what you do not just out of merely duty and obligation. It's a reflection of the kindness that you've received from God. The impulse of being his ambassador, his disciple, that, that drives to seek the flourishing life and love of our neighbors and demonstrate how we have been transformed by God's hesed. Naomi and her restoration is now hopeful for more than just being restored, but redemption that she didn't believe was possible before. That someone would possibly be a kinsman redeemer for a Moabite. That someone would want somebody as broken as she thought she used to be. Naomi's outlook, in other words, has brought more attention to the reality that they indeed could appeal to their kinsman redeemer because they have been restored from the situation of extreme poverty and hunger. That, that, that Naomi believes that we are no longer undesirable. But that perhaps Boaz will be our kinsman redeemer. The Lord perhaps is redeeming us to something even better and greater. You know, growing up, um, since my parents were, were immigrants, uh, they were desperately trying to help me to learn English and, and would let me, because of that, lot, watch a lot of children's educational programs that were on TV. Um, and one that always made a huge impression on me growing up was the show, um, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I know I've just dated myself, like, 
the generationally in the gap here, right? Um, if you ever thought about the concept of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, um, it, it's an impossible pitch to a TV executive today. Wouldn't you agree with me on that, right? right we're going to have this middle-aged man, not a superhero. He's not a comic book character. He just wears a cardigan and talks about being kind all the time and sharing your emotions. Uh, this is going to be the most, most successful children's TV show of all time. No one would believe this. Never mind for the 33 years that Mr. Rogers led Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And um, there are many favorite Mr. Rogers stories that I could tell about sort of the power of a said kindness that I could share. Uh, Mr. Rogers would, at Halloween, give out full-size candy bars during Halloween, much to the chagrin of the parents in the neighborhood. Uh, when reporters would, would come to talk to him, he would invite them to their home, he would feed them, he would ask the reporters questions about their lives, and he would get their phone number and write them letters, and, 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 and to the point where the reporters were just overwhelmed by his love and his kindness. Um, perhaps my, one of my favorite uh, Mr. Rogers stories is that he uh, got into a New York subway, and a bunch of jaded New Yorkers who had recognized him suddenly burst out into songs singing It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood to him while he was in the subway car together. Um, but perhaps the story of Mr. Rogers that I think represents most this idea of the redemptive power of a said kindness comes today in uh, the story of how he saved children educational public television. Uh, you see, in 1969, the government had thought about shutting down educational shows like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhoods uh, by hurting their funding. Uh, Mr. Rogers, who was an unknown figure back in the time, came to uh, Washington, D.C. and sat in front of a man by the name of John Pastore, the man who was in charge of deciding the fate of whether or not to cut funding to children's education and television. Uh, a couple of things about John Pastore. He was an incredibly firm and impatient man. Uh, and for two days, he had heard the same sort of legal and economic arguments for two days about why they should be kept. And so Mr. Rogers comes to him at the end of this, and in a six-minute speech, and if you go watch it, I highly recommend you do, tells him about not the, the legal policy, not the economic viability, but he tells him about the value of kindness of these shows the lessons that they teach young children that extend beyond violence and shock and drama, and that what children needed most was television that could tell them that they were loved and that they were cared for, and that they could express their feelings. And in the highest moment of kindness, Mr. Rogers does something that no one would have expected him to do on this congressional floor. He reads a poem about the beauty of a kid child expressing one's kindness. And in that moment, it broke the heart of this hardened politician, John Pastore. After the speech, John says, well, that's just terrific. Mr. Rogers, you just got your funding. The kindness of this middle-aged, unassuming man in a cardigan redeemed the value of education for children. What does the Hesed kindness lead to in the redemptive work that you will do in your life? That's ultimately what I wish and desire to share all of you today, that the Christian life is more than just thinking nice things. It's more than just believing nice things. 
Christian orthodoxy and Christian orthopraxy have never been separated throughout all of church history. And it's certainly not anything less than the work of justice, restoration, and redemption. The core of the gospel message is the message that the kindness of Jesus leads you to no longer fear about your eternal state. No longer fear about what you will eat or drink. No longer fear about what you need to toil about, how to redeem the shattered pieces of your life. No longer do you need to live in despair of what life may be and what life may become because Jesus has risen. The central hope that we have as believers is that Christ has already done the most kindest thing that could ever been expressed. He's appealed to God on your behalf. He has filled your storehouses with His righteousness in such a way that eliminates any worry that you have not collected enough good works to make it through. That Christ has protected you from the enemies of Satan, sin, death, the world that that circle and condemn you. And Jesus says that you are under His care. So there is nothing that the world can do to you. This is the power of the kindness of God. The power of a set that leads you to do the same. Church, let us be a people of kindness. Let us be a people of justice, restoration, and redemption as we look to our Savior. Let's pray together.